Good morning. Hi, my name is Mark. The Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 24, 13 through 14, 25, 16, and 25, 27 through 28. My child, eat honey, for it is good. The, honey, the honeycomb is sweet in your mouth. Know that wisdom is like that for your whole being. If you find it, there is a future. Your hope won't be cut off. If you find honey, eat just the right amount. Otherwise, you'll get full and vomit it up. Eating, it, eating too much honey isn't good, nor is it appropriate to seek honor. A person without self-control is like a breached city, one with no walls. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. So then, with endurance, let's also run the race that is laid out in front of us. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us throw off any extra baggage, get rid of the sin that entraps us, and fix our eyes on Jesus, face pioneer and perfecter. He endured the cross, ignoring the shame, for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him. He sat down at the right side of God's throne. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 through 19. To what will I compare this generation? It is like a child sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song. And you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Yet the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved to be right by her works. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Thank you so much, Mark. Father, we come before you today and we're reminded of what the psalmist said, that the truly happy person loves the Lord's instruction and recites that instruction day and night, and they are like a tree planted by streams of living water who bear fruit in the right time. And so this morning, we come before you asking for you to instruct us, to guide us, to help us, to plant us by that stream, that we might find the life that you always dreamed and planned for us, flowing into us and out of us through the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. A couple of just really quick updates before we dive into the text this morning. First of all, Pastor Glenn says his, sends his hello. Some of you know that Glenn not only serves as the lead pastor of New Life Downtown, but as the associate senior pastor of New Life Church. And so one of his uh, responsibilities or duties uh, in that arena is to oversee actually all of our offsite congregations. So last week he was preaching at New Life 
East. Today he's preaching at New Life Midtown, but he will be with us in worship next week. I also wanted to give you an update for those of you who may not have been here last week, kind of about our housing situation. So uh, we are here at the Antlers uh, until August 1st. So we'll be here every Sunday till August 1st. Our hope was that on August 8th, we'd be able to go back into Palmer High School. Uh, About two weeks ago, we received notice from them that they've decided to do a construction project on their auditorium. Uh, So that will not be ready until sometime in October. So we have a bit of a gap in August, September, a little bit of October. Uh, So we've got emails and phone calls and those things out at various places uh, around downtown. So we've contacted other hotels and event centers and Colorado College and other churches um, and other schools. And we're waiting to kind of hear back to see what might be available. So we'll keep you updated as what we find out and where we'll be during that time. And worst case scenario, we have a parent who has a really nice uh, basement that we can go back into up at New Life North if we need to. Um, So, but we're going to try to be downtown because that is who we are. We're downtown for the good of downtown. So we're going to keep working on it and we'll keep you updated and we appreciate your prayers in that process. Today we are in our fourth week in a series through the book of Proverbs, a series called How Do I? In this series we're exploring the good life. What do the scriptures teach us about the life that God intended for the people of God to live. How do we live well in God's good world? And today we're going to be exploring the question, how do I, how do we enjoy life? How do I enjoy the life that I have been given? On Thursday night, I was going over my notes It was right after bedtime, but my nine-year-old wasn't quite in bed yet, and she came into our room where I was going over the sermon notes, and she looked at me, she said, Dad, what are you preaching on on Sunday? I said, well, I'm preaching on how do you enjoy your life. She stopped. Dad, I want to hear that sermon. (laughs) Then she paused, she was like, everybody wants to hear that sermon. This is the first time she's ever done that, and all these nine years of her wonderful little life. But I think that there is something that when we hear that idea, uh, what does it mean to enjoy life? That there's a desire for that in all of us. Even from the time that we're little kids, we want to enjoy life. We want to have fun. We want to experience joy in this world. And yet the older we get, we know how hard that can be. It can be really hard to find joy as our responsibilities increase or as trouble comes our way, as we begin to realize some of the difficulties and troubles and challenges that we experience in life. I think one of the reasons why sometimes when you talk to parents and say, what do you really hope for for your kids? Now, oftentimes the first thing out of their mouth is, I want my kids to be happy, which at one level you're like, really? Like that's your hope? And yet the older we get, we realize that joy in this life is not guaranteed. And that there's a sense like, yes, we really do want our kids to experience joy because we know that there are going to be hardships in front of them. And yet our hope and our prayer is that there would be joy even in the midst of all of those things because none of us really want to get to the end of our life and be miserable people. But yet we all know people that this is where they ended up due to all of the things that happened in life. 
And yet at the same time as we talk about this, we know that it's kind of a, a core desire in us. It can actually feel like a strange topic for a sermon. Like there's a part of us is like, well, that's not really very spiritual. <laughs> Right, we're going to talk about enjoying life. We got serious work to do. The gospel is serious business. Why are you talking about this? Don't you know what's going on in the world? It's like, surely there's something heavier we should be talking about. So it can feel strange on that level. It can also feel strange simply because Christians are not oftentimes known as people of joy. Like, if we're really, really honest, people both inside and outside the church, if you ask them to describe the Christians that they know, I'm not sure this, like, makes the top of the list. Like, they're just really joyful people. We're not really known for our parties. <laughs> but it's, but it's kind of ironic is that Jesus was. <laughs> right? Like, he, we saw that gospel reading. Like, Jesus is being accused of all of these activities because he's partying so much. They're like, surely that guy is having so much fun. He must be a drunk and a glutton right? because of how much joy is coming out of him. In fact, Christians oftentimes are seen as the opposite. In a lot of fundamentalist Christian movements, Christianity gets defined by the things that we're against. We don't dance and we don't play cards and we don't go to movies and we don't read fiction books and you just go on and on and on and good. And yet, as we look at the scriptures, we see a really different picture kind of come to the forefront. As we really look at the text, as we look at what the scriptures have to say, we were actually meant for a life with joy. The first thing we see in the book of Proverbs is that wisdom made the world with joy and for our enjoyment. And wisdom made the world with joy and actually for us to enjoy it. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often personified. It's sort of cast as a character. Sometimes it is a parent giving a speech to a kid. Sometimes it's lady wisdom speaking to those that are listening. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom gets personified as the agent of creation, as the one who is with God when God is creating all things. And Proverbs 8 says this, I, wisdom, was beside him. I was beside God as a master of crafts, and I was having so much fun, smiling before him all the time, frolicking with his inhabited earth. I've been waiting to say frolicking in a sermon for a really long time, so I just had to stick with the CEV here just for that, and delighting in the human race. When we look at the scriptures, God took great joy, great delight in creating this place. He fashioned it carefully, and then he gazed upon it, and he looked at it, and he said, oh yeah, that's good. Like, that's really good. Well done, me. So well done. And in doing so, his own joy was actually ingrained into the very fabric of the universe. That his own joy, the own delight, his own delight that he took in crafting this place actually became ingrained into the very fabric of the universe. Why? I think simply just so he could share it with us. He wants to share his joy. He made it this way so that we could enjoy everything that he spoke into existence. 
I mean, think about our first home. Our first home is called Eden. And in Hebrew, Eden means pleasure or delight. At the very place that we were intended to live, it was a garden of pleasure, a garden of delight. This is where God set us. And we look really closely at those sort of creation texts, we find that there is more food in the garden than we need. There's just an abundance. There is splendor in the garden that serves no purpose. Why are things that delight? There are unnecessary luxuries. There are things in the world that are simply made to bring us joy. There are breathtaking sights and alluring sounds and exquisite tastes. And we have bodies that are made to belly laugh. Bodies that can sing and can dance. Well, most of us, I have to just like keep it right here. Like I just, if I venture outside of that, it's, it's just not pretty at all. It's dangerous for myself and others. We find this coming up in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 24 says, my child, eat honey, for it's good. Why eat it? Just because it tastes good. The honeycomb is sweet to your mouth. Life is meant to be enjoyed. But we know even as we talk about those things, immediately something else comes up for us which we have to pay attention to that we know that too much of a good thing can actually be bad. That as much as life is meant to be enjoyed, overindulgence can also be dangerous. And we kind of live in this tension. We saw that in that Proverb 25 in the very next chapter. It says, if you find honey, eat it, but eat just the right amount. Otherwise, you'll get full and vomit it up. Now, I've never had too much honey. Like, I, I, this has never been like a problem for me to like look at the honey and think, I need to eat so much of that that I get sick. But there was a day in elementary school I think it was like around New Year's or something. We were staying up late. There were friends over. There were people filling the house. And no one was moderating how much Orange Crush I was drinking. <laughs> and I just haven't been able to have it since. You know what I mean? Like, how many of you have that? Like, there's just something that you, at one point, you had too much of. And be honest, I only see one honest there. Yeah, like, you overindulge, and now suddenly this thing that you love, you just can never have again. It's like, I just, I can't see it. I can't smell it. I just, I can't go there. We know that overindulgence is folly, and that our own delight can actually be our downfall that there is a danger kind of in the middle of this. And so we're left in the wisdom literature asking the questions, what are we actually to enjoy and how are we to enjoy it? Now, how are we to enjoy life? Where do we actually find this fullness of joy? It's common in our culture to actually believe that in order to be happy, in order to be joyful, in order to find that, that we need more, that we need more in order to be happy. I read a book one time that was talking, uh, and it was, they were interviewing an ad executive. And this ad executive described marketing as the organized creation of dissatisfaction. And I was like, that's it, right? Every time I see a commercial or see an ad, I'm suddenly dissatisfied with everything that I have, right? Suddenly my iPhone is not good enough. Like that iPhone 7 is looking really cheap right now, right? And you're like, oh, but that one, look how much more, look how much better, look how much happier my life would be if I just had that. 
We're led to believe that if we have more money or more fame or more power or more followers or more experiences or more gadgets or more connections or more relationships or more of this, that, or the other thing, that if we have all of those things, then suddenly we'll have joy. And if we're not in that space of saying, well, I don't actually need more, then we're suddenly in the place sometimes where it's not really more, I just need something different. I just need a different thing. I don't really want more than one of this or more than two of this. I just want different ones than the one that I have. And we start to believe that we simply can't enjoy life until we get it, whatever it is. And but what happens is as soon as we get it, a new need comes up. And now we have a new thing that we need, or that thing gets old or it breaks or something happens to it. It doesn't actually quite do all that we hoped, and then there's a new need. And what happens is that unless something actually changes inside of us, we start to realize that we'll never be satisfied. It's just, it's not going to happen. So Proverbs teaches us actually to do something different. Proverbs actually teaches us as the people of God to savor what God has already given us. To savor what it is that we already have. Proverbs 23 says this, it says, don't long for the ruler's delicacies. For that food, it just misleads. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich, trying to get more, trying to get everything. It said, be smart enough to stop. <laughs> I love how blunt Proverbs is at certain times. Like, just be smart enough to stop. Sometimes our longings can be really misleading. The things that we're longing for actually can't deliver what they promise. That what we think we're going to have, if we can just get that thing, actually isn't going to deliver that. And you think about the first time that maybe you realized this. For a lot of us, it probably happened somewhere in elementary school when we got our first allowance, started saving our pennies and thinking, this is the thing that I'm going to buy, right? And if I just get that, then... I'll be cool. <laughs> if I can just get those shoes or that skateboard or this thing, then suddenly having that will get me in with this group and then it doesn't work. We find it actually can't deliver what we think it's going to deliver. So Proverbs teaches us to stop chasing joy where it can't be found. To actually instead to savor what it is we already have. Proverbs 15 says it this way. It says, drink water from your own cistern, gushing water from your own well. Which I always find to be really funny because we don't drink from cisterns or wells anymore. But the idea here is, well, what else are you going to get water from? Like if, if you've got a cistern or you've got a well, where else are you going to drink? Well, the only other place that you could drink from would be your neighbor's well or your neighbor's cistern. Oh, like why would you want to do that? <laughs> Why would you want to drink out of your neighbor's well or your neighbor's cistern? Two reasons. Either one, we don't actually want to do the work to dig our own. And Proverbs teaches us to actually savor the fruits of our own labor. Like to actually savor this. The other reason is we actually start to believe that the water is better there. <laughs> like, oh, I bet you that well, 100 yards away, I bet you the water is way better than it is here. That cistern, mm, water tastes like lemon coming out of there. We start to believe these things, that actually our thirst would be quenched somewhere else. But I think chances are that God has already provided what it will, that what did we need to quench our thirst? And what we're taught to do is to savor it. It goes on, it says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
The, the Proverbs ideal, the spouse, the spouse of your youth is also the spouse of your old age. Now, we know there's all sorts of things that can happen that doesn't make that possible. We're talking, you know, there's times that people pass away before we expect. There's relationships that end up toxic and abusive. We're not talking about those kind of things. But in general, what the hope is, the dream is that the spouse of your youth will be the spouse of your old age. But what happens for us oftentimes is that we start to think that we need different relationships in our lives, that we will not find joy here. So we need a different spouse or different kids or different friends or different boss or different coworkers or different neighbors or different whatever. But God calls us instead to actually cultivate joy in the relationships that we have, to actually rejoice in the relationships that are already here. It goes on in Proverbs 27, know your flock, pay attention to your herds, and then the lambs will provide you your clothes and the goats will be the price of your fields and there will be enough goat's milk for your food. I know that's on everyone's top of their menu for lunch today. For the food of your house and to nourish your young women. Proverbs teaches us to pay attention to what we already have and to actually realize that what we have is enough for us and it's enough to nourish others that it's actually here to savor it because joy is not found in what God has given to another. Joy is found in what God has given to us. And we're called to savor that. The second thing Proverbs teaches us is to desire life's greater goods. Proverbs oftentimes makes comparative evaluations and says this thing is better than that thing. Like Macs are better than PCs, right? In-N-Out is better than Whataburger. All the Texans, we don't have very many Texans here. They're not getting angry at me yet. <laughs> right, baseball is better than football. We all know this to be true. No. <laughs> like we make these kind of evaluations like this is better than that. But Proverbs actually doesn't make the evaluations the same way that we do. It actually makes the evaluations differently. Proverbs says things like this. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than a great treasure with turmoil. Better a meal of greens with love. In other words, better is kale with people who love you and care about you (laughs) than a plump calf with hate. This is actually false. (laughs) It's like, no, kale can never be that good. No, there's actually something about the company that we keep, the people that are around us. Proverbs 17 was better a dry crust with quiet than a house full of feasting with quarrels. It goes on and says, better to be wise, better to be righteous, better to be humble, better to be patient, better to have self-control, better to be trustworthy, better to have a good name, better to be innocent, on and on and on the Proverbs go, reminding us that who we are is actually more important than what we have. And that character not conquests or acquisitions are, is actually the key to our great joy. The key to great joy in life is our character, the kind of character that actually brings us into fellowship with God and with other people, and that we find great joy in those things. So Proverbs warns us over and over and over again, don't settle for cheap thrills. Don't settle for fleeting highs. Don't settle for life's lesser joys, for the things that are fast 
and easy and cheap and right in front of us and seems so unbelievably intoxicating because actually there are greater joys. Proverbs teaches us to play the long game, to actually sow the seeds now that we'll reap in our 70s and 80s. To say, you want to know what the key to joy is? It's 50, 60, 70, 80 years of marriage, of friendship, of relationships with people, of faithfulness in what God has entrusted you, of being faithful with those things, being faithful with the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has invested in you, and getting to the end of your life and being surrounded by those people. And they're saying to you the very thing that God will say to you at some point, well done. Well done, good and faithful. That's the great joy in life. Sow seeds now that you'll reap 70, in your 70s and 80s and 90s and Lord willing in our hundreds. This is why Christians throughout the ages have actually practiced various kinds of self-denial. That we practice abstaining from things. We fast Why? Why do we do this? Why do we practice fasting in order to feast on something better? Why do we abstain from things? Why are Christians people that are known by abstinence? Why is that a part of our culture? Because we do that in order to enjoy something better. We just say, no, 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 we're not going to settle for this. There is a something greater out there that the Lord has set before us. The last thing that we see in the book of Proverbs is that Proverbs teaches us to delight in doing good for others. To delight in doing good for others. We live in a world where we're constantly t- like encouraged to look out for number one. We got to get what's mine. I got I to gotta take what's mine. I got to get my portion. I've got to get my share. I got to get my due. I got to get what's coming to me. And that belief gets embedded in us that joy is not only found in acquisition, but in retention. Not only do I got to get it, I got to keep it. And I got to keep it for me. And so oftentimes we're sort of walking around life and internally we're just kind of doing this. And then toward everybody else, like trying to get as much as we can and then protect it from other people. They're saying, oh, I, I've got to get what's mine and then I've got to keep it. I've got to hold on to it. And suddenly what happens inside of us is that getting more and keeping more becomes the most important thing in our life. And we start to put that above everything else. And yet the Proverbs teach us is that there's actually no joy in that that there is no joy in that way of living, but there's actually great joy to be found in doing good for other people. Proverbs 12 says this, deceit is in the heart of those who plan evil, but there is joy for those who advise peace. Peacemakers, those that are not walking around trying to pick a fight, and trying to get what's theirs and trying to constantly get their point across and make their voice heard, though there's times and places for all of that, I get that. There's actually great joy for those who advise peace, who are looking not for false peace, but for true peace in relationships and in communities and society. Proverbs 21.15 says, acting justly 
is a joy to the righteous, but dreaded by those who do evil. That actually establishing justice in whatever places that we can, in whatever areas that we have responsibility over, whether it's in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our city, that actually this is something that we can find great joy in by making sure that things are right in the world. And that actually seeing justice happen should bring great joy to the people of God. It goes on in Proverbs 22, 9, it says, Happy are generous people because they give some of their food to the poor. That actually happiness, joy, is not found in this hoarding sort of space that the culture leads us into. But actually great joy is found in an open-handed life of being generous, of sharing, of inviting people in, of generosity and simplicity and hospitality and saying, come, come, here, here is some of the food, here's some of what God's entrusted to me, here, let me help meet that need for you. Let me be a conduit of God's blessing in your life. For the people of God, the greatest joy is actually found in doing good. This is where we find joy, not in self-satisfying lust, but in self-sacrificial love. That this is the, the very way of Christ that we get brought into as a way of self-sacrificial, self-giving love toward others. This idea of a greater joy, that there is a greater joy out there for us, and that that greater joy is actually in doing good for others is revealed to us in Jesus. And that really well-known passage in Hebrews that we read, the scriptures call us to fix our eyes on Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter. Why? Why don't we fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, he endured the cross and he ignored its shame. Why? How is it that Jesus did this? How, how did he go through all that he went through in those moments? What was it that compelled Jesus in those moments where he was praying, not my will, but your will be done. Let this cup pass for me. But you know what? At the end of the day, what, let your will be done. Why is it? And Hebrews tells us it was for the joy that was laid out before him. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. See, for Jesus, his great joy was our redemption. His great joy was giving entirely of himself to bring us into the family of God, to make it possible for us to be reconciled with God and with one another. As he is facing all that he's facing, he is seeing a greater joy. So he was able to enter into a place of self-denial, of self-sacrificial, self-giving love, knowing that on the other end of that, there was a great joy, a great celebration to be had in order to do good for us. And in order to redeem all that he made, he endured the cross. And as his followers, the very thing that he tells us to do is to follow him in that. Follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Because in doing so, we actually find that on the other end of that, 
is resurrection. On the other end of that is great joy. We deny lesser goods, not just so that we ourselves can have greater goods, though that's part of it, but actually we do it beyond that for the greater good of other people. Of being able to say, oh, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross in order to bring good to us. So in order to bring good to others, in order to taste life's greater goods and its greatest good, which is in doing good for other people, we are willing to say no, 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 no to that for something that gets set out in front of us. And see, when we do that, we actually partake in life's greatest joy. Life's greatest joy is our full participation in the love of God. When we do that, we get, we're fully caught up in receiving the joy that was set before Jesus coming into our lives and receiving that and experiencing the great joy of sharing that with other people. Receiving and sharing of being fully immersed in the self-giving love of God. The God of the universe, the God who made the world in joy, with joy and for our enjoyment, delights in doing good to us. He delights in doing good for you. He delights in bringing his goodness into your life. And then he invites us, those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, to actually participate in his deliverance of his good to other people by delighting in doing good for others. So as we come to the table today and we remember Christ's sacrifice, oftentimes what happens for us as we come to the table is that we we hold an, an, an appropriate seriousness around this time. We remember the cross and we remember why he went to the cross and we, re- we confess our sin and we hold on to that and there's a sobriety about us as we think about that. And yet sometimes I think we miss another dimension and that dimension is joy. But why did Jesus do all of this? For joy? And maybe it is that Jesus was fully aware of all that was set before him as he was sharing that last meal with his friends. It was he was fully aware that there was a seriousness and a sobriety to the moment. It's possible. But is it also possible that as Jesus looked at his friends, as he looked at his disciples, and as he saw beyond the cross to what was going to come, his resurrection and our redemption. Is it possible that there was joy in his eyes and a smile on his face as she shared this moment with his friends? And is it possible for us to maybe imagine that for a moment, that as we come to the table, that we're tasting the very joy of God, that this brought God great joy to bring us into his family, and it brings him great joy to share a meal with us. And it's a foretaste of the joy that we'll experience forever as we sit down at his heavenly banquets and our fast is completely over and we feast forever 
with him. Evan, would you lead us to this table?